Hello, and thank you for joining us for another episode of Hope for Healthcare with Dr. Katie Cole in partnership with ICD Healthcare Network. Dr. Katie Cole is a holistic physician, organizational well-being consultant, and change agent, working with industry leaders and proven strategies to heal our national healthcare system and our culture of medicine. Stay tuned to hear today's speaker. Well, welcome to Hope for Healthcare, everyone. Today, I have a very distinguished and well-known guest, Dr. Jonathan Ripp. He is Professor of Medicine, Medical Education, Geriatrics, and Palliative Medicine, Dean for Wellbeing and Resilience, and Chief Wellness Officer for ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. In the role of Chief Wellness Officer, Dr. Ripp oversees efforts to assess and provide direction for system and individual level interventions designed to improve well-being for all students, residents, fellows, and faculty at the Mount Sinai Health System. In addition, Dr. Ripp is also the co-founder and co-director of CHARM, the Collaborative for Healing and Renewal in Medicine. Well, Dr. Ripp, I just want to thank you for being here today. I'm so excited to, to have a empowering and an insightful discussion with you. Thanks so much. I'm delighted to be here. <laughs> well, can you tell our audience a little bit about your background and how you became interested in resolving healthcare burnout? Sure. Yeah. Um, my, you know, my story is, is a little bit um, uh, circuitous or there, there wasn't necessarily a clear path, uh, largely because I've been in this space for uh, almost two decades. And back when I got interested in this kind of work, there really was not much happening in any sort of formal way. Um, I, I'm trained as an internist and I, I still practice uh, in here in New York City uh, through Mount Sinai. Uh, came here for my residency and when I started almost two decades ago as a junior faculty, a general academic uh, internist, I, you know, start, sort of began thinking about areas that might be uh, an area of focus, an area of academic focus. Um, and I just became really interested in, in ideas around how, uh, how residents in particular at the time, how residents change um, psychologically and the impacts of training on the resident during, during, uh, during that whole process. Uh, it just kind of fascinated me. And and um, became an area that I, I began to explore. And I would never have predicted that this is where I would end up um, starting from, from that. But really, you know, I started from a place of, of wanting to study the issue. Um, so began doing some small uh, research studies, survey-based research studies just here at Mount Sinai. Um, and, and as I moved along in my career, I began to explore and find um, similar like-minded researchers at other institutions, uh, and very slowly over time um, kind of expanded the scope of our research. Mm -hmm. And then kind of, you know, in many ways, I, I, I sort of picked a winner, as it were, when it comes to, to an area uh, that would be my career focus, uh, because I, I was able to, to kind of contribute to and follow the tide, uh, follow the momentum that was cl clearly mounting in terms of both recognition and attention to, to issues around healthcare worker uh, 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 and trainee well-being. I became an associate dean first for resident uh, uh, well-being, um, and then just under five years ago, took my current role as chief wellness officer. Uh, in large part, you know, I think when you start paying attention to any one group, 
other groups you know, sort of starts to speak up and say, what about us? And, and that's kind of what happened. There became increasing recognition and, and also um, the foresight of, of the dean of the school to whom I report that this was something that needed a, a larger um, um, a focus, a larger uh, administrative um, commitment. And, and that's where my position came to be. Uh, doing a lot more nationally, but I'll, I'll get back to you, uh, let you take it from there. Well, that's great. And, you know, just thank you so much for the work that you're doing, Dr. Rip. And I applaud your leadership at Mount Sinai as well for recognizing that this was a much needed endeavor and investment for your group. Yeah. Yeah, no, indeed. And it's it's been uh, it's been a journey. And yeah. and uh, this this work is uh, it's about perseverance. So there, in many ways, uh, we're talking about culture change. We're talking about trying to uh, change the way in which you know healthcare is practiced. And so that's that's not quick work. No, you bring up a really good point. It definitely is more of a longer term strategy when we're talking about shifting culture across an entire healthcare organization. Um, you know, as a chief wellness officer, what are some of your key strategies in creating a healthier work environment for your um, employees and students and residents? Yeah, so I think the way I would answer that question is first by defining what a chief wellness officer is, at least how I see yeah. the role. And I, I think um, it's a very new role. When I started uh, just under five years ago, I, I, a quick search, I, I found uh, three other people in the country at the time uh, doing doing uh, the work under that title. Um, I, I Through Charm, we have a chief wellness officer network for which uh, there's about 50 members right now. So that's all changed. It's all evolved over the last five years, but it's still a very new uh, position. So to talk about our, you know, what our strategies are, really, we have to define what what it is. Um, and, and so, in in my view, the chief wellness officer is the person who oversees a team, uh, um, and that team has the responsibility for bringing the expertise to to be able to do a lot of measurement around well-being. So being able to understand not only how well or not well different segments of a large healthcare system are doing, um, but, and perhaps more importantly, understanding the drivers that are, that are at work that are influencing those outcomes of, of well-being that can be measured. The, the drivers are, are critically important because it, it informs um, what we do and, and the strategies of which, of which you speak. Um, the, in addition to gathering those data, we have to be able to analyze and digest the data and then uh, in many ways lead by influence. Uh, the, the types of drivers that are at work that are influencing the well-being of our workforce are so large that it would be impossible for the chief wellness officer to do what we do and also uh, oversee initiatives to, to impact those high-level drivers. So what do I mean by that? We, we need to be able to to measure what these drivers are, analyze, digest it, and then bring that information to a host of stakeholders within a healthcare system who can then effectuate change, um, whether it's a department chair, whether it's a unit lead, whether it's the chief nursing officer, uh, folks in HR, folks in informatics, uh, folks in operations. We need, be, need to be able to bring this information and say, you know what, in this particular group, it's the electronic health record in basket that's driving distress. Or in another group, there are staffing ratios. Or in another group, this group really um, is not feeling valued or is not feeling like their leadership supports them or is not getting communications around 
um, what support there is. Uh, or maybe the, there's a group that's having um, a lot of psychological distress, but you know, we're just coming out of a pandemic. And so um, being able to measure that, being able to bring it uh, to the people who can effectuate change and being able to tell a, a coherent story around how to move forward um, is that's the infrastructure that that we um, oversee. We do so with a group of well-being champions that are 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 our people in given uh, spaces embedded within a healthcare system who can interface between us and the leaders to to help come up with the solutions. Um, a lot of times, those solutions, uh, the strategies, are focused on system level change on. Uh, on enabling people to be more efficient and effective in their work in a place where they feel valued. Uh, it's, it's our belief that if we can understand uh, what are those barriers that are getting in the way of people doing their jobs um, efficiently and effectively, because, uh, you know, healthcare, we, we, it fortunately, is uh, the, their careers in which there's inherent meaning. That, that can be derived from the work. We just need to unlock it. We need to enable people to derive it um, and, and make it so that they can do their work. And then similarly, and there's lots of, of data from um, uh, you know, other, uh, even outside of healthcare organizations that, that really have that culture piece where people feel like they're part of something special, like they're part of something that's meaningful, uh, that, there's a, that they're mission driven. Um, and that they're valued and, and respected. Um, if you can create a culture like that, you can create a really effective uh, organization. Wow. So it sounds like, you know, what I, one of the things that really um, stuck out to me is that you really tailor your initiatives toward, you know, the actual drivers for each group, because, you know, you, you cover an entire healthcare organization and system. So like maybe one medical group might be suffering, like you said, from more psychological distress from the impact of the burnout versus another, maybe dealing with more of a flow issue. And so you're really looking at those individual drivers of burnout and then creating strategies to at a system level to change those. Yeah, yeah. And the, the um, you know, understanding the specific drivers and understanding them by by given group is is a key piece of this, because um, uh, th though we are all in healthcare, uh, the, the drivers are that are going to, um, you know, be positive or negative as it relates to well-being are going to be very different in an ambulatory versus an inpatient setting in in nurses, you know, compared with physicians, compared with other healthcare professionals. And then even within, uh, you know, a given discipline, um, you know, there's going to be lots of variability. Uh, so even in, if you take ambulatory physicians, there's, there's very, there's big differences um, amongst the, the specialties. So it's important not only to gather the drivers and be specific about them, but also to understand that they vary by constituent group and create a structure where, you can come up with plans to address those drivers um, based on a given group. Uh, and the other important point to, to make is that um, there's that that well-being is complex. You know, there's there's many different uh, drivers at work, and so uh, you're always going to identify more things than you can uh, that you can address at any given moment. So. Being able to prioritize a given driver um, or or fa phase in your approach, you know, maybe this year we're gonna we're gonna address the in basket, you know, next year we're gonna address um, you know staffing ratios, um, you know, the year after we're gonna do you know an all out kind of leadership training, 
uh, kind of identifying things that you can you can you know not not um, boiling the ocean or biting off more than you, you can chew, but really trying to be effective in uh, identifying uh, given priorities uh, to prioritize them and to address them in the order that that um, they have importance. You know, I'm curious, Dr. Ripp, how are you able to engage the leadership and healthcare employees? on embracing the initiatives that you're rolling out? How, like, how do you, how do you get them to become, you know, more passionate and enthusiastic given in the past, you know, maybe initiatives were rolled out that just created more work and extraneous cognitive load? Yeah, well, you know, that, uh, you know, I started by kind of giving you in broad strokes what, yeah. what the job, the job description is for the chief wellness officer, mm-hmm. um, you know, which is sort of, we bring the expertise to do the measurement. We analyze, digest it, bring it to stakeholders, and help help uh, identify solutions to address the the priority drivers. You know that that's how I would describe it. When we talk amongst ourselves, you know, if you pull the curtain back, you realize that much of the work of the chief wellness officer is just is doing what you just said. It's it's making the case and. Um, and, and building those relationships to, uh, you know, engender the, the kind of buy-in that's needed to, to make change uh, at the system level. And so I spent a lot of my time um, cultivating the relationships with the people that actually I, I need to, uh, to, to engage with so that they understand what I'm doing, you know, why I'm doing it, what the implications are, and, and what needs to be done to make uh, to make change and and why that's in their interests also right so um, oftentimes uh, healthcare organizations are priority rich you know they have uh, there's just one priority added on to the next and so well being should not just be one more priority uh, it really should be um, it should be aligned with other priorities that that uh, stakeholders have you know to make a an efficient electronic health record is not, you don't do it just because uh, it makes the well-being of the user uh, better. I, I mean, you should, um, but it's also because it, it helps to be more efficient. Mm-hmm. Well, and it, you know, I'm sure that you've had a lot of experience with, in, you know, t- rolling out initiatives and trying various programs. Is there any one or two lessons that you've learned along the way that has really helped you become more successful in the implementation? Uh, well, um, you know, the first, the first thing I'll say is that, um, you know, the actual program delivery that comes out of a, of a chief wellness's off, office mm-hmm. is going to be limited. Uh, so if you're talking about overseeing the initiatives that are likely to have impact, then, um, you know, it, it's actually what we do is we gather the information to bring to the people that we're trying to influence and then you know, encourage them, uh, partner with them to roll out the initiative. So I guess what I would say, the lesson learned, which really is a lesson that I think probably extends beyond just uh, just well-being leaders, but is really a lesson of leadership, is, you know, ensuring that um, that all the right people are in the room, right? So when, you're mo- when, when you anticipate uh, and you, you're desirous of making a change at such a large system level, um, you got to make sure that all the all the right people are, are there to to make that change because for a couple reasons, 
one of which is you're going to be ineffective if you don't have the people in the room who are actually who actually know how to how to make things change. Um, you know, and then the other reason is, you, you know, you might ruffle feathers. Right. Um, so if you don't if you're if you're not taking into account those leaders who are needed to make the change, um, then, you know, sometimes you can you can kind of shoot yourself in the foot, so to speak. Uh, I think it's a, I think it's a general lesson of leadership, you know. Uh, is is everyone who needs to be here in the room so that we can you know we can we can hear their their thoughts and um, and collaborate with the people who can really make the change happen. Yeah, that's a great lesson. You make a really good point, and I'm sure it takes a lot of um, experience and knowledge to even pick the right leaders and to identify the leaders that are going to help you be successful. Yeah, you know, I, I would say I, I've had the fortune of being at the same institution for more than two decades. So um, that helps. It helps. Uh, on the other hand, uh, you know, when I when I entered the, the position that I'm in now, um, it's very fair to say that I, I needed to meet a whole host of new people that I just hadn't really engaged with prior to because of, of where I was situated and the work that I was doing. Um, so, you know, that that can't be underemphasized that it, it it's work it's really work to get to know uh you know who, who in a system uh are the people that um that can that can actually make the changes um and who are going to be your partners who are going and then who are the people that you know you got to work on who are the people that don't get it or who are the people that maybe don't you know see eye to eye or maybe um hear you but think of you as just one more priority on a long list of of priorities so um, that that is the work um, that that is a lot of what the job is. And possibly some leadership training along the way as well for um, your up and coming leaders. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, leadership training is uh, well, the, the way I think about leadership training is that there, you know, there's some elements. Um, there's some elements of of leadership that are you know, more natural. There are just more natural leaders than others, right? There's some that just take to it. Um, and so what what we believe is we, we know uh, there's evidence to support that the behaviors of leaders really influence the well-being of the individuals who report to those leaders. And uh, but there's a wide a variety of, of leaders and leadership skill. And um, some people become leaders because they have those skills and others become leaders for other reasons. For us, it's about kind of, you know, rising, rising tides, raise all ships, right? So um, it's not like we need everybody to be, you know, to exemplify perfectly all of those domains of leadership that promote well-being. But if we can, if we can move everybody up a bit, then we think it's going to have, you know, a beneficial impact on, on the entire community by, by, you know, and just, and just by prioritizing and bringing to light that this is uh, that this is that this does have impact that the the behaviors exemplified by leaders actually has an impact by bringing that to light that's that's a win in and of itself that's that's us saying we are a culture that recognizes this um, and we may not have it perfect right now uh, but we're working to to, um, to to make make it so that these these behaviors are, are recognized and that leaders are, are exemplifying them more often. And that's really a powerful way to shift our culture of medicine, as well as to be investing in leaders and employees as well. So thank you for doing that work. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, and I know, Dr. Rip, I know I wanted to ask you a little bit more about um, CHARM. I know that you're the co-founder of that organization. Did you want to talk briefly about some of the initiatives that you're working on nationwide? Sure, sure. CHARM is um, in the process of incorporating. It's our hope that what started as kind of a grassroots group of like-minded individuals who are coming together to do more than just talk about a, a, an issue or, or research an issue, but wanting to actually take action, you know, is now uh, um, in the process of what we hope will become the professional home for well-being leaders, um, yeah, a place where we have a, a series of networks for different levels of well-being leaders who meet regularly and um, and learn from each other here, you know, become educated, educate each other and work on collaborative projects. Um, we also have uh, some educate. We run, we run courses and um, and we do do some collaborative research together. Uh, so we, we do a fair bit of education. And so, um, you know, I, I think it's our hope that it'll just continue to expand and, and function as that place where if you're a well-being leader, it's where you consider your home. Oh, that's wonderful. I'm so glad that you've created that. And it's definitely necessary, especially for growth and evolution as we're trying to, you know, really define, clearly define the role of chief well-being officer. Yeah, we're working on it. Yeah. Well, um, Dr. Rip, is there any last key message that you want to leave with our audience today? Um, just that, you know, I, I, I remain uh, optimistic, even though times are really challenging. I think, um, you know, it's fair to say there's more more threats to, to well-being uh, of the healthcare workforce than maybe there, there ever were. Um, you know, that's possible. That's arguable. But um, there's a lot of challenges. There's a lot of challenges that are at work to undermine and erode the well-being of the healthcare workforce. And yet I do think um, we've we've never seen more attention to this issue than we have now. And so um, I, I think with that attention is going to come. Uh, recognition of of solutions that that really do make an impact. Um, it's unlikely that we'll see change immediately, and quite frankly, some of the challenges may get worse before they get better. Um, but I think that uh, the future is definitely brighter as it relates to to the practice of of healthcare. I think um, inevitably, inevitably, we're going to address some of the issues that are challenging us today. There probably will be new ones that emerge, um, but that means that that our work is is necessary uh, and will continue. So I just, I thank you for the opportunity to share about what we're doing. Absolutely. And it's an, been an honor and pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much for having me. Um, well, and everyone, I will have Dr. Rip's information available on his bio page on the website, plus we'll be posting in uh, social media and LinkedIn. So um, I also will include any information Dr. Rip would like to have available to you as well in case you want to reach out to him. And uh, thank you everyone for tuning in to Hope for Healthcare podcast. And we look forward to seeing you again. And thank you again, Dr. Rip, for your time today. Thank you. All right.